If we engage in story that is too thin and too narrow, that can really impact us. Or if we engage in story from nothing at all, from no place in particular, that can really impact us. Hello and welcome to the BBXX podcast, Let's Get Intimate. I'm your host, Sasha Laurie, and we're here to challenge the way our culture has conditioned us to talk and think about sexuality, intimacy, and healthy relationships. To question everything, to embark on a journey of self-understanding, and to begin to rewire some of the backwards thinking that we've absorbed from the subconscious influences that have shaped us all. Our hope for you, and for myself, and for all of us here at BBXX, who are on this journey with you every day, is that through a better understanding of our own identity, of who we are, and why we are that way, we can form deeper connections with other people and live healthier, more fulfilling relationships as a result. Join us as we change the conversation and the culture surrounding intimacy and relationships. And remember that better relationships equals a better life. Before we hop into today's interview with Dr. Jamie Goldstein, I have one more announcement particularly pertinent to this interview as well as the one next week as we're speaking with some of the wonderful people behind the company COA, C-O-A. And on December 9th, we are doing a Q&A event about sex and intimacy. And you can find that information again on our Instagram if you subscribe to our newsletter or on the COA website join COA, that's joincoa.com, and you can sign up there or on Eventbrite. And if you sign up for the event on December 9th, you can submit your questions and we will be getting into all the fun, nitty gritty topics and questions related to sex and intimacy, but we'll also be talking in the weeks leading up to that. So this week on November 11th, we will be doing an IG Live with COA, and their Instagram is joincoa, and ours is bbxx.world. And next Wednesday, we will also be doing another IG Live. And so we're going to be further diving into some of the topics discussed today, as well as diving a bit more into the sex, sexuality, and intimacy-related topics as we prep for the wonderful event coming up on December 9th. So... If you'd like to be more involved, if you'd love to get some of your questions answered and hang out with us as we dive deeper into sex, sexuality, and intimacy, make sure to follow us on Instagram and tune in for that event coming up on December 9th. Dr. Jamie Goldstein is a licensed clinical psychologist. She maintains private practice in San Francisco, California, and is proud to be the therapy experience lead and primary therapy matchmaker at COA. 
Dr. Goldstein is a two-time author and has led Q&As and discussion groups for COA on a range of topics, including relationships during COVID, imposter syndrome, and sex. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jamie. I'm really excited to jump in and get to know you a bit better, get to know your work a bit better, and specifically explore story, the power of story, the role that narrative plays in our lives and in shaping our experiences in our lives. And just this incredibly formative and almost deceptive power that perspective has over us. And so thank you so much for joining us here today. And I would love to just have you open by telling our listeners a bit about yourself and a bit about, (laughs) I don't want to use the expression, what turns you on. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great I know. I had a swim coach who used to always use that. Like, what turns you on? What lights your fire? Yeah, what gets you going? Yeah, what? Sure. (laughs) Tell us a bit about your work as a therapist and what interests you and how those interests have come to be. What experiences or events of your own have shaped the work that you do today? I love that question. So intro on me, I'm Jamie. Other terms are Dr. Goldstein. I'm I'm a clinical psychologist who has been practicing in private practice for a solid chunk of time now. I also am a two-time author and work as the therapy experience lead for the mental fitness studio COA. And what brought me really to this work is part of my answer of what turns me on, of what gets me going. And that is deep, intimate connection, which I I think is what brings you and I together so well, Sasha, is that there is this passion for all the different flavors of intimacy in the sense of deep connection. And that's so much a part of the therapy process. A big thing that really gets me going in my personal life is connecting deeply with people. And do we explore and do we look at stuff and talk about this tough stuff and this therapy, all of these other things? Yes, absolutely. But what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt about therapy is regardless of tips or tricks or techniques or the theories that you're really backed in is what makes for really good therapy is a really solid relationship. And so that's what has always spoken to me about this work since I was an itty bitty is that deep connection and that deep relating to other people. And part of that deep relating is really bearing witness to the story of others. So it's also what sort of drives me to be so interested in this idea of story and narrative and how we walk around both with conscious stories and unconscious stories that we carry with us. 
And in terms of what brought me to it, one of the little tidbits I like to tell, which is something, you know, I would say that I'm, I'm proud of is part of me thinks that it's a little bit in my bloodline. My father did this work and his father before him also did this work. And all three of us sort of share this commonality of wanting to sit with people in their stories, wanting to read their stories, wanting to hear their stories and being delighted by the intimacy that comes with that, the connection that comes with that. I just want to piggyback off of that mention because I just heard this the other day, actually, when diving into learning more about narrative therapy, that the number one predictor of the success of therapy is the relationship between the therapist and the client. So truly how important that is And going off of kind of that basis of having a strong relationship kind of not only predicts but allows for growth and development, our relationship with ourself is the same in that sense, needing to have that foundational relationship with ourselves in order to connect with other people. And love how that was kind of a huge motivation of why you got into this work. That is absolutely how the two of us have come together here today is that Shared enthusiasm for deep, intimate connection. Intimate enthusiasts we are. So story, what is the role then that plays in our relationship with ourself and how, I want to say, kind of expansive or limiting is our relationship with ourself and experience of our lives based on our story and the stories we choose to tell ourselves. Yeah, there's so much rich goodness there. The answer you will often get when you ask any therapist a question like this is, it depends. Because it does. I think of all of life, including story, as on a spectrum. And so the thing that really struck me as you were just asking that was thinking about the expansive stories and the limiting stories. And we are creatures walking around with both of those, with all of those at any given time. And our first stories are often ones that we don't have much of a hand in writing. An example of this that I often use is sex, identity of sex of a child, for example, that based on genitalia, there's a story that can get written for that child before the child even comes into the world. And this is an example of a story that maybe gets written for us or handed to us that can feel limiting depending on who that person grows up to be and the gender identity that they choose to exist in or that feels best for them. And so this is a great example of the way in which story could be limiting story that isn't handed to us. And then there's sort of a reauthoring process that has to happen. And on the other end of the spectrum, there is story that can be passed down to us or handed to us. I think of cultural stories of 
I'm thinking of the women that I have worked with and sat with and both the limiting cultural stories that have been handed to them about who they are and how they need to exist in the world and the really empowering, expansive ones about who they are and how they can exist in the world. So going from that language of how you are supposed to or should exist in the world to how you can and have the capacity to exist in the world. And I can speak to this from my own stories that have been handed to me of what it means to be a Jewish woman and have voice. And that was something that really I noticed for the first time in a very visceral way for myself in college of recognizing the ways in which not all people who identify as women feel the or have the freedom to have as powerful a voice as I was given the opportunity to have. Certainly for all sorts of other points of privilege and experience in that way, but also because culturally that was a story that was handed down to me from being a child up and through now in my adult life that my voice mattered and that I would be asked my opinion and that the voices of my mother and my aunts and my booby who just turned 90 are very, very strong. And so there's sort of, you know, there can be these cultural components that also really inform. So from the, I think of it like from the macro and, and the widest lens of how does a society or a generation view us and give us a story to the more micro of a culture down to a family system, right? Because all of our systems, our families of origin operate differently down to the very micro, which would be ourselves. And there's so many additional layers in between, right? So that's an over oversimplification there. But there are all of these stories that we are walking around with and, and lots that we're not aware of as well. So there are also the unconscious stories there's a million different paths you can walk down when it comes to story. Absolutely. This is something that struck me when I was learning more about narrative therapy, which we'll get into in a bit. But recognizing that we are told stories about ourselves before we even know what a story is, before we even have the capacity for language or even understanding the words coming out of people's mouths, let alone voicing our own stories as babies. How often have you heard, oh, they look like so-and-so, they talk like, walk like, look like. It's always that babies have to look like somebody else. And this happens even in my own family. And I think, I don't know that they do look. I don't know that this newborn baby looks like that 80-year-old person you're comparing them to. But <laughs> We love to give context and seek meaning through story and through association. But just to bring that to the attention of listeners and to think about from how young perhaps we've been told these stories, as we'll call them. And then, again, the same sort of thing. There was this example where if a young child is having behavioral issues, and this has actually also been happening in my family they might be labeled as aggressive or a troublemaker or something of the sort, when in reality, 
it's another story saying, why does this middle child feel lonely? Or there was a new baby born. They want attention. They feel disconnected. And there might be certain consequences or behavioral things that are happening as a result. But those are two very different stories. And then the last part that I loved is, again, how dynamic it is and this other kind of layer of layers, for lack of a better word, but this scale of them as well, from the micro to the macro. And I just loved how perfectly this ties into, we're in the process of recording a series of interviews about communication. And it's the same because you have these conversational styles, these patterns from the words you use to pausing to all kinds of things. Your whole communicational language is shaped by not only your family, but the culture and the generations that shaped them. Also on an individual level, there are so many differences on a socioeconomical, based on age, and there are just all these layers. And I just felt like that comparison ties in so perfectly. And it's kind of this constant reminder that everything is cross-cultural. Our communication with one another, our experiences, even within the same family, right? You can have different communicational styles, different cultural influences, and different stories that you tell one another or yourselves about the same shared experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And something that, you know, as you're talking, uh, came to mind for me of uh, another reason. I love talking about story and have some rooting in this practice of narrative therapy that we'll talk a little bit more about is language. Language is so important to me. And there's so many different types of language. So not only the language that's coming out of my mouth into your ears right now, your ears and listeners' ears, but there's that language of tone, of body, of written language. There's generational language. It made me think about how right now I've been on this project in my family to collect as much Yiddish as humanly possible because that it's a dying language. And it's a language that I don't want to leave my life and whatever. If I, I have a legacy, if I don't have a legacy, I want Yiddish to be a part of it. So it made me think about the impact of language and how it captures both the narratives that others offer to us, others being whether it's a societal other or a cultural other or a actual person outside of us other, and the way it really captures part of or can start to get to going back to these unconscious narratives, it can start to help capture some of those, the language that we use to speak to ourselves. Well, tell me a little bit more about that word. What does that word mean for you? If someone comes into a therapy office and says, I'm depressed, I have to understand what that language of depressed means for that individual and all of the culture and story that surrounds them because it can mean so many different things. I just think about the power of language and how all of the different flavors of language play into that in such a huge way. And when we can start to 
get into a practice of finding the language that really fits best for us, it is so powerful when we can start to tap into the language that makes the most sense for who we are, who we want to be, it really can change the trajectory in a huge way. Language fascinates me. And I couldn't help but think about how language, quite literally, depending on where you've come from, the language, the dialect, the kind of tenses, the grammatics, how that, again, either enhances or empowers our ability to tell a certain type of story or might limit it. And I can't help but think back to this episode. I don't know if it was Radiolab, but it was about this man. And I believe he was, I can't remember what South Asian country he was from. And he told a story about talking to his dad and realizing that their native language, unlike English, didn't have the tense for I wish I would have, kind of dwelling on the past. There was essentially just a huge focus on the present, and you could talk about the present, and perhaps there was even capacity for planning into the future, but it really was focused on the present, and that shapes the whole way you set goals, you plan your life or not, you have regret, you express guilt, just so many feelings that can't be tapped into without the language to do so, whether that's for better or for worse. I just find that sort of thing so absolutely interesting. Another thing that I came across when doing my research was this idea of the multi-strand story. So on one hand, there was this TED Talk that talked about the dangers of one story and essentially having one perspective about anything and having one story we tell ourselves about an event. And so I can't help now but think about people always talk about there's two sides to every story, but there are infinite. And how story has such a close relationship with our interpretation of truth. So many layers there to be explored. But the reality that we can and should live in multi-dimensional and multi-layered stories as well. There's a quote that now, of course, I'm forgetting who said it, and I wanted to look it up that really, I remember learning it back in when I was in undergrad. And I was like, holy shit, that is the realest talk. Because it's talking about how we view things. And to me, as you're talking about it now, I was like, oh my God, it was talking about story. Because it was essentially this idea that if we engage in story that is too thin and too narrow, that can really impact us. Or if we engage in story from nothing at all, right, from no place in particular, that can really impact us. And so this idea that things have to have, and this is going back to, you know, what I had mentioned about really engaging with life on a spectrum, the importance of having that fluidity of 
multiple threads, right? The whole tapestry analogy that gets used so much. It's used a lot because it's so true. And being able to have different threads of story come together to create a single entity of a human is so powerful and there's so much to be explored there. And it's so deep and so important because again, if we have these overly narrow or these overly general or from nowhere in particular stories, they're very, very thin is one of the words used through the narrative lens. So the narrative therapy lens is these like these thin descriptions and what we want to be able to do both in therapy or, you know, in our own practices is start to build a thicker description, a fuller story. I'm not sure what the tapestry analogy is, but I came across this analogy and it had, it essentially had this rectangle that was filled with dots. So if you can imagine a constellation of dots and it drew a line through some of the dots going across the rectangle. And it said, this is one way you can tell a story. And then it went back to the beginning and it then drew the line going up much farther and around and kind of with more squiggles and coming down and ending somewhere else. And it said, this is another way that you can tell the same story. And then it went on to draw all these different squiggles and different pathways and different lines that were totally different and using that to kind of demonstrate again how dynamic and different this same quote-unquote story can be depending on the way we tell it, the way we think about it, the way we internalize it, the way we share it. Yeah, it's a little bit different from the tapestry analogy that is used as we think about all of these multiple different strands Right? So these multiple different stories that make up an entire entity. There have been these really gorgeous art displays that when you're far back, you're seeing this full picture. And as you get up close, you notice that the picture is made up of a bunch of smaller pictures. So that's another way that I'm thinking about story and how we are made up of so many individual stories, right? Each frame of a photo is a different story that's making up this full person. Yes. I love that because again, now this is another level. We have the layers of story. We have kind of the temporality of story. We have the scope, how close or how far, sort of the angle the perspective. So all kinds of layers here. As we're kind of getting a better grasp of story and what it means and all the different ways that we can tell a story and understand it, how can these empower us and how can they be limiting? And then we can kind of then further explore it through the lens of therapy. But for anybody on kind of an everyday scale, how can we better understand the influence that story has on our everyday lives? Sure. So in terms of the limiting influence that story can have on our everyday lives, I think about a common one that we see or hear is the story of anxiety. And so imagining like a capital A anxiety that there is this story about, oh, I'm anxious. 
yeah, I can't do this because I'm anxious or I'm too anxious to, or my anxiety. And so there's sort of a way in which we can get attached to story or story can attach itself to us, depending on how we come by it, that limits us and starts to calcify inside of us in a way that now we as our own entity are no longer separate from this story, that the story is us. And it's only one story. And it's only a very thin description. And so we're not seeing the fullness and the richness of all of the different parts and pieces. All of a sudden, we are the anxiety. And that can be really limiting for a number of folks. I think about the expansive version of story where if anxiety is an external entity, right, we separate the self from the really pigeonholed thin story, we can say, oh, this is something that I interact with. Oh, this is something that gets a hold of me from time to time. But me, Jamie, I'm still my own experience. I'm still full of a bunch of different story, which gives me the opportunity to be rich and to be deep and to be whole as opposed to this subscription to only one very thin part of me. And so that's sort of how I think about the way in which story can confine us and then the way in which when we tap into story through a slightly different lens can really open us up to all sorts of possibility. And I just can't help but come back to language here. Here, what comes up is, for example, a state of feeling. And so in English, you might say, I am anxious. And that is, in a sense, part of your identity. If we're native to the language, we understand, okay, that can be temporary. You might just be anxious today, and it's implied. It could also mean a permanent state and kind of a characteristic built into us. In Spanish, for example, you'd have, first of all, there are two different tenses for if something is a permanent characteristic versus temporary. For example, with anxiety, you actually wouldn't use those. You would say, I feel anxious, more likely something of that sort. And so again, how different are those I am feeling anxious versus I am anxious? which associates it with an identity. Exactly. And that's the huge differential in language. And even going back to what you said about sort of, even if English is your native language, and if someone says, I am anxious, that there's this assumption that, oh, okay, they're feeling this way. This can brings me back to the unconscious process that language has a really big influence on of, yes, we can assume, oh, I'm just feeling this way. It's temporary. But using the language of I am this actually implies that, like you said, it's a part of my identity. It's a part of who I am as opposed to an experience. And so that's often a huge language shift that either I make explicit when working with folks or is something that I just sort of implicitly do when getting curious with someone about their stories is being able to name, oh, you experience anxiety. Tell me about the experience of that. 
oh, at this point you felt this way. And then at this point you didn't. Tell me a little bit about that. Help me understand that to start to separate them from this identity that can feel really confining. And there's also kind of implied responsibility or perhaps in some cases blame because in Spanish, you would say if somebody dropped a plate, the translation would come to the plate dropped from him or her versus in English, you would say Jamie dropped the plate which has this implied blame, but that's the exact translation. And so I am feeling anxious or I am anxious versus this assignment is making me feel anxious is even totally different in the sense of whose responsibility or the reasoning behind it and that it isn't just something that is only internal, but hey, oh, this is associated with external factors and you are going through something right now that is causing this anxiety. It's not just part of your identity, only internally. Yeah. And this is really part of the origins of this modality of therapy called narrative therapy that we've been sort of hinting at, which is to separate people from the problem, that it really stands on this belief that people are not the problem. The problem is the problem. There's so much power in the empowering sense of power that comes with even just that statement of recognition that you are not the problem. Nothing is wrong with you for having dropped the plate. The plate dropped. It was a thing that happened. It was an experience. And it doesn't have to be the entirety of you and of your narrative. That being said, I definitely want to throw out there that there are ways in which our stories, especially when they form so young, as we mentioned earlier, that they certainly do, can calcify over time and then serve us in particular ways, oftentimes ways that we're not totally conscious of. And so there are ways in which we can invest in these stories because they're doing something for us, whether it's something that manifests in a healthy way or not so healthy way, they are serving a purpose in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I love that expression calcify. There's something about it that makes it more tangible and concrete, you mentioned it could be for better or for worse. So it can kind of calcify in the sense of, I imagine, like becoming stronger and building a foundation and becoming part of our identity if it might be a positive, empowering story or characteristic that we're leaning into. Or in another sense, kind of calcifying if it's a negative thing, I can't help but think of this idea of memory tissue, which we've talked about on the podcast before, where if we don't properly deal with trauma, and this could be micro trauma, it could be large traumatic experiences, or it could be micro trauma built up over time. If we don't process it and we repress these things, they will eventually house themselves in our bodies and create what is called this memory tissue where they store themselves. So I really love that word use to kind of solidify things. Yeah, I have to shout out Dr. Emily Anhalt for that one, that she tends to use the word calcify. And it really spoke to me as well. And so talk about language thing, right? That language for me, for who I am, how I show up in the world and all of my different narratives and stories and paths, that language made sense to me. 
and I can say, okay, I'm going to adopt this language because it gives true essence to what I'm trying to describe. And for some folks, nope, it's not going to land. And for other folks like you right now, you're like, oh yeah, that does make sense. I can see that. I can picture that. And so it just kind of goes back to, oh yeah, language, it's huge. And again, how when we're talking about, we're using the word story, but it can be so many different things. Yes, it can be a false story. It can be one small experience. It can be an expression. I have tons of issues with sleep. I'm actually going through this sleep coaching program that is amazing. One of the things is, you know, not labeling yourself, avoiding the use of any labels about what type of sleeper you are, a good sleeper, a bad sleeper, insomniac, da, da, da. People use mantras, for example, to kind of overcome that story or pre-existing label. As a joke, I have decided that my mantra would be I am a sleep goddess. And that is a story that if you tell yourself enough times, whatever story, even if it's true or not, even if you believe it or not, it will have some effect, whether it's negative or positive. If you tell yourself whatever story enough times, there's no doubt it will have some influence. Yeah. And a big part of this that I want to just touch on really quickly as well is that we are meaning-making creatures. The few things that I often say is we are social creatures, we are meaning-making creatures, and we are messy little creatures. Messy in that there's such both ands that exist within us. So many truths, so many stories exist simultaneously within us. We can both feel like an imposter and feel like a badass all in the same go. That messiness can feel mentally, emotionally, psychologically really hard to hold and hard to sit with. And so oftentimes we do everything in our power to move away from the mess or pretend that we're not social creatures and we can be like aloof and cool and like do our own thing and whatever, or that we, you know, we aren't going to make meaning out of something. Oh, whatever. It doesn't really mean anything to me. And it goes against these very, very true experiences of humans for generations and generations. And so all of that to say that thinking about story also brings meaning making and what meaning do we make from these stories or what meaning gets made of us or of a situation or of an experience that then becomes a story. So as we've kind of talked about and really solidly established the importance of story and how unique it is to humans and to each one of our own experiences, I'd love to finally invite you to tell us a bit about narrative therapy how these two things are intertwined and what you love so much about narrative therapy. Yeah, so I'll throw out there that narrative therapy is one model and one framework that I like and tap into from time to time when it makes sense. All in all, I would say I'm pretty depth-oriented integrative therapist, meaning depending on what makes the most sense for whoever is sitting, well, it used to be sitting across the room from me. Now it's sitting on the other side of the screen from me that I draw on what's useful. But what I really like about 
this approach of narrative therapy. So it was developed by a couple of folks, a couple of men, Michael White and David Epson from New Zealand. It came in the 80s and, and the 80s in general was a time when there was sort of this wave of change in the psychological community of noticing how pathologizing our field was in thinking about the DSM, which is the manual that therapists learn to diagnose from and all of these sorts of things that there's a way in which people are starting to notice this feels blaming. It feels blaming, it feels pathologizing, it feels shaming in some ways. And so narrative therapy was one of the responses to that. It felt like really critically important to White and Epstein for people to not label themselves as broken or as the problem. There's a few things that I really like about this framework. It is one, that it takes the full context into consideration, meaning it takes societal norms into consideration, it takes culture into consideration, it really wants to go off of the fullest picture of somebody's life, right? And not having these very thin descriptions of like, okay, these symptoms happen this many times a week and manifests as XYZ thing. And so, okay, gonna slap a label on you. And there you go. There's another story. So it really looks, takes this respectful, really curious approach, which I so appreciate. And what it does is it sees the client or whoever you're doing therapy with, it sees that person as an expert, which is something that feels so respectful to me because I'm not that person. I'm not in their shoes. I'm not living their life every day. And so what I often tell folks is while I'm the mental health expert into the room, you're the expert on you. And so you're going to bring your expertise to the table. I'm going to bring my expertise to the table so that we can collaborate to do some really awesome work. It really suggest that we create and are given stories throughout our lives to, you know, make sense of our experiences. And sometimes, as you were saying, Sasha, that sometimes these stories can be positive and other times they can be negative. But what we know is that they definitely impact us. So if we have these stories that have either calcified within us or have become sort of that parasite within us, whenever something positive or awesome or empowering or exciting or feel good, joyous to us is happening, that parasite of a story can take the nutrients essentially from that experience and make it so that we have a tough time absorbing it. So it's another way to describe this process of internalization. We internalize a story that then becomes a part of us. I am this thing. And so one of the things that narrative therapy does really nicely is that it starts to externalize that story and bring it from inside of you to outside of you, right? Again, that you are not the problem, the problem is the problem. And so how can we see it as external to you, as outside of you and your process and informing your story about yourself. I love these little gems and quotes that I pick up through interviews or research. This 
idea of having a co-collaborative experience and the person is the expert in their own life and helping them rather than sharing your expertise and telling them what to do, the emphasis on helping them tap into the expertise that lies within and just kind of shining a light and exploring different paths with them. But again, putting the power in their hands and recognizing that they already have so much of the knowledge and tools necessary to kind of create that change and find the solutions. Just it's a matter of finding it within themselves. Yeah. And that's where therapist becomes rather than solely this like expert guide, which certainly is a really great stance and role that therapists do play as they guide you through this archaeological dig of the self, so to speak. They also become a curious collaborator and ask a lot of questions and want to hear more or understand more because what they're doing essentially is helping the individual or the people that they work with gain clarity about these things that lie within, whether it's the powers that lie within or whether it's the stories that lie within and through curiosity can start to deconstruct these stories in order to understand them better and then ultimately be able to identify, okay, so now that we've sort of like deconstructed and understand our our dominant stories that's at at play here, how can we also identify moments when it's not getting the best of us or it doesn't convince us of XYZ thing about ourselves? And what narrative calls this is unique outcomes. I tend to call them bright and shinies because I just think that's more fun. And so thinking about, yeah, where are these bright and shiny nuggets as we're doing this archaeological dig here where we're like, oh shit, there really was this moment where anxiety didn't get the best of you. Or I just met with a patient yesterday who we were doing some externalization work and she identified her experience as Jekyll and Hyde. And so it was a really awesome way, one, to encapsulate her experience of what was really getting the best of her was this Jekyll and Hyde entity that was telling her a story about herself. And so we started to get curious about Jekyll and Hyde and like, what is his deal and what is he about and where does he show up? You touched on a few things here and I'd seen a video where it similarly kind of personified something or it's not a person, but talked about somebody expressed their experience of depression uh, through a description of a black dog that followed them around. And it was extremely powerful using metaphor in that way. And so I'm picking up on, from what I researched, externalization, dominant narratives, some of these terms that have come up. I'd love to have you explain a few of these key terms to give people a bit of a better understanding and then explore some examples and use cases for how to use this methodology to kind of overcome or cope or enhance certain areas or problems in people's lives. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with dominant narrative or a dominant story. Essentially, it's being able to recognize that while, like we said earlier, we carry several stories at the same time, sometimes there's a story that's more dominant than the others. So when this dominant story starts to get in the way, 
or starts to sabotage our efforts towards growth or change or being the best that we can be, it becomes problematic. And I, I want to make really clear that living our best life or, or being the best that we can be isn't about being happy all the time. And it's not about being positive all the time. It's about being able to experience the fullness of ourselves and the fullness of what it is to be human, which means the good, the bad, the ugly. And sometimes a dominant story can get in our way of experiencing the fullness of ourselves. And so in that sense, I'm thinking about a dominant story of, I have to be strong. Folks who maybe are parents or providers in some way, or even in a partnership, feeling like I have to be a rock. I have to be the strong one. And granted, there are times when this story is part of all the other stories that maybe live with someone. And so, yeah, it makes sense. There are times where we have to be strong with and for the people around us. And where a dominant story starts to look a little bit different if this story about having to be strong starts to outweigh all of the other stories like I have to also have space to cry or uh, moments where I can break down or vent or or be upset or be hurt we would start by like identifying you know what is a dominant narrative that is getting in the way here for us and and how has it potentially been internalized in such a way that it's sucking that nutrients out of the other like full and delicious human experiences that we're wanting to have so rather than i'm strong i have to be strong well how can we start to understand this and create distance between the person and that problem, right? This problem of like, I must be strong, which another version this often takes on is like, I can't be weak or I'm weak. So this is other language for sort of a similar process, right? This, the story of weakness. So if we can start to separate these feelings of if I'm weak, then this is what it means about me as a person and, and who I am. And we can start to make some spaciousness between I have to be strong or I can't be weak and ourselves. We can start to better focus on how we want to interact with how this dominant story is convincing us of shit that like actually isn't true or authentic to us, right? So someone might say to me, well, I do know that it's okay to cry. I want to make space for my partner to cry and, and feel their feelings or be upset or be disappointed. But no, I can't do that because if I do that, I'm weak. And so when we can start to make space for it, we can start to shift how we interact with that story and start to see the ways in which, oh, okay, so there's some clarity here. And, you know, what may have been times when the story of weakness, let's say, didn't get the best of me and I was able to share, oh, that really bummed me out. 
or that let me down, right? So it wasn't the dominant thing, actually. It was, it was hanging out over here, another story over here, and there was a fuller, richer picture that got to exist. On this show, we love to give actionable advice. And so I'd love to explore some kind of use cases, specific use cases, and then kind of go into the actionable advice in different formats through which people can explore this, not necessarily only within the context of therapy, but perhaps on their own, be it spoken, written, all kinds of other things. And what people can take away from this, not only in the sense of possibly a tool to further explore through therapy, but on their own. Yeah, sure. One of my favorite stories that comes to mind around this question of use cases, I'm thinking about a young man that I worked with who part of his dominant story was don't feel your feels. That really got in the way for him. And logically, he would say, but I know it's good to feel my feelings. Yet emotionally, there was such a blocker there. And so we started to explore what this dominant story was really about and what was sort of influencing him, what was the narrative that he was, whether it was intentional or unintentional, subconscious or conscious, investing in or subscribing to. Ultimately, what he got to was this feeling of fraudulence that I know it's good to feel feelings, but also I, I don't want to feel them. And there was a lot of conflict around feeling and around emotion. And, and what he realized is there was this huge dominant story around being a fraud that was wrapped up in all of that. And so we did some externalizing around it and named this dominant story Frank, for short for Frank the Fraud. And so we started to notice together in therapy, we started to notice Frank and then those action items to actively work against Frank is what this person noticed is there was certain music actually that when they tapped into music could kind of push back against this story that Frank was telling Right. Frank is telling the story of like being a fraud or not being real. There was all sorts of stuff. And when certain music would come on, he could tap into that and start to open himself up to other possible stories like, oh, wait, no, I can feel into this and it's very real. It's not fraudulent. I can make space for this very real experience of mine. And so what he ended up doing, which is one of these action items that I think can be such a fun way to play with story and play with narrative is through music and creating a playlist. And so what he ended up doing is creating an emotional playlist. And we I forget how many we identified, maybe five or so, five or so emotions that he wanted to be able to access and highlight their story. 
And so he came up with a playlist and had one song for each emotion in order to help himself tap into that and feel like he was able to experience himself more authentically than Frank was allowing for. And so this is one of those like just fun, different, playful things like beyond talk therapy that we can really utilize is something like music. And I know I'm a huge music fan and I think there's a way in which, of course, as you all have gotten to know me by now, I'm a big language person. And so song lyrics really, really speak to me, but so do instrumentals, you know, and there's a way in which music can move inside us to help us unlock different stories or different experiences. So that's one that I think can be really fun to play with is starting to create playlists of sorts that can help us identify all different stories or different narratives for ourselves, including that dominant one that maybe is getting in our way. If we're not you know, ready to name it as Frank the Fraud, there might be a song that's representative of it, of like, oh yeah, hearing this song, it really sort of encompasses this thing that convinces me that I'm this or that or the next thing. So music is a huge one. Another one that I think of, and this is both something that I have used in my work with folks and also something that I have used personally for many, many, many years now is writing and journaling. So getting into a writing practice, if that's something that feels accessible to you and available to you, can be one of these really, really great ways to churn on narrative and churn on experience and the way personally that I have viewed journaling and and writing for myself is as my own sanctuary. It's a space that's just for me. And that is so much of what can feel so sacred about therapy is like, yes, there is this person that you're building an an intimate connection with and this really close relationship and alliance with. And also it's a space that's just for you. And in this like go, 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 go day and time where so many things are vying for our attention at any given moment, I'm sure if I looked at my phone right now, there would be emails and Slack notifications and text messages and missed FaceTime call and whatever. Having a space that's just your own is so paramount to letting your stories live and giving them the opportunity to exist and breathe and get some space that's not only in your head, right? We're telling our stories all day long in our heads, but when they can come out of our heads and into the ether, whether that's through paper or for some brave folks, even recording story on their phone as well, there is a way in which we interact with them very differently when they come on the outside of us. Right. We interact with them differently and they're also processed differently because the way that internally we tell ourselves stories in our heads is different than when it is spoken or when it is written. Kind of the whole process of the brain and the psychology behind it and the ability to understand 
and the perspective it can give us is totally different. Yeah. And, and every time we tell a story, it shifts a little bit and that can go either direction in terms of it shifting in a way that feels like it's moving toward our authentic self or a more affirmative narrative or getting retold in, in such a way that it's moving us toward this tightened, more confined self. And so giving it space to breathe and be explored over and over can be really quite powerful. To kind of tap into the actionable advice even more, what are some of the questions people should ask themselves? So in the beginning, if would it be identifying an issue if, for example, somebody is struggling with anxiety or work-life balance and not feeling like they can relax or take time off? I'm not speaking from personal experience at all. <laughs> but if somebody like really needs to practice chilling out <laughs> and for some reason has a story that they can't let themselves do that, what are the questions that listeners should ask in order to identify this, you know, problem and then go about perhaps externalizing it and exploring some of these tools? Yeah, something that just initially popped into my brain is I would be curious to write that story to write that story down, right? For, for any of our, our listeners, your listeners who are like, what is my story and how is that coming up? Is to start writing your story and see what you find. It's a really interesting process to go through to start to write down like, this is me, Jamie Goldstein, and start to notice what comes up. What language am I using to describe myself. And you can break this down in different ways. Like this is me, Dr. Jamie Goldstein as a psychologist. And there's a story there. This is me, Jamie G as, as a friend, which is, you know, a term of endearment that I get from friends. Or this is me, Jame, as a sister. This is me as, as a daughter and so on and so forth. We can think about it. We can break it down in terms of our roles to start to get curious about those. There's two questions that I often ask. One is about starting to notice or get curious about your golden threads. And what I mean by golden thread is what are the through lines that you notice, the thematic or plot so to speak, through lines that you notice from role to role or setting to setting or story to story? Is there some sort of theme, some sort of golden thread that's connecting those that we can start to get curious about? So what are my golden threads or what is my golden thread singular? The other question that I utilize a lot for the personal like exploratory process is what might this be? If we're noticing that we're having an experience over and over again, like it's hard to say no to work and stop working, is being able to notice a process and then ask, what might this be? And it sounds like such a, a vague question, and, and it is on purpose to give a lot of space to possibility of what might this be? And then when we come up with an answer, 
well, what might that be? And there's a way in which we can link and chain back and back. And it's kind of like the example I give is that annoying little kid question where a kid will come up to you and ask you a question like, why do ducks not get wet? And you're like, well, they're oil, their, excuse me, their feathers have special oil in it. Well, why? Because this is how they evolved into da, 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 da. Well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And there's a way in which, you know, like adults to child that can feel really obnoxious, but really what's happening, and sometimes it is for the sake of being obnoxious, but really what I love about that is it's so curious, right? That sometimes when we really understand, well, why? What might this be? Well, why? What is that? And sometimes the simplest version is even just coming back to sort of like the basic grammar that we learn in in school of who, what, where, why, when, how. And just starting to answer some of those questions for ourselves is seeing them as question marks. The who, the what, the where, the why, the when, and the how. I Love that idea. And, you know, in startups, you define user personas and kind of write out these characters of people who will, you know, use your platform or your product. And the concept of kind of writing user personas for oneself and these different characters, different versions of ourselves and and what the thread throughout them is or why they're different and what parts we like, what parts we don't, which we want to those which we want to kind of keep or lean into or empower or, or empower ourselves with and those that perhaps limit us and perhaps we want to learn to let go of. But using that as a way to actually take a step back, reflect, and be able to recognize them so that then there's an opportunity to then kind of better understand and, and take action to make changes where necessary. And those childlike, that childlike sense of curiosity And those questions and the who, what, why, where, but just the why and diving deeper into, as we discussed, all these layers, there are so many layers to go through and so many kind of layers of asking that question that I think could be extremely interesting and and powerful to explore. Yeah. And I would also say that, of course, my own biases are going to lean towards like the therapy exploration process. I'm also thinking about what are what are the things that make you curious? Like you listener, what are the things that spark curiosity for you? Is it reading? Is it podcasts? Is it art? Is it music? I'm thinking you had the music action item had had landed for you. And it made me think about this was a chunk of time ago, a podcast that I did with a woman named Mindy Peterson. She's a nationally certified teacher of music and she hosts the Enhanced Life with Music podcast. And what I liked about being on it and then becoming a regular listener myself is there's such curiosity through this one vehicle, through this one mode of like, oh, okay, so I know I like music. Well, why do I like music? Well, let me listen to this and hear about all of these amazing, delicious ways in which people are talking about music and notice like, oh, shoot, yeah, music does that for me. Oh, wow, music does this for me. Or, well, I never really thought about music that way or all of these sort of options. Another one, a a big favorite is On Being with Krista Tippett. And that sort of bigger life question, I just listened to a a really lovely interview she did with a poet named Jericho 
Brown, I believe, that was just such a beautiful exploration of story and narrative. And so there's a way in which when we stay open to story and to narrative, we start to see it everywhere. And so part of that staying open is this desire to start to get curious. Curiosity doesn't have to be this immediate deep dive into like the very depths of anything super gnarly. I always use the metaphor of scuba diving that you don't go straight from the surface of the ocean to the ocean floor because you'll explode. Or at least I've never gone scuba diving, full disclosure, but at least in my brain, I'm like, oh my gosh, you would probably explode. But I I do know that... If you come up too quickly, you will. (laughs) Yeah. So there's this process of equalizing that has to happen, right? And so the same is true for our our personal growth and, and exploration of self is allowing ourselves to equalize that we don't have to go to these really gnarly places really quickly because we want to honor and care for ourselves in that way. There's such a level of tenderness and gentleness and compassion that we can offer ourselves while still asking the tough questions like why or what might this be? And noticing, okay, I can equalize and hang out here for a little bit until I'm ready to go to that next place. It's so true because part of it is it's hard to get there and you need practice and you need the knowledge and the tools and the skills to be able to properly do so. And it's hard work, so building up to it. But at the same time, I think often people know how hard it will be And so confronting that and taking that, the idea of taking that all on at once is just too much. Or even on a basic level, I know, okay, I should sit down and write and journal, but I know that I have too much to say, so I won't even start. Or I know there are so many emotions to to dive into that people might say that you put up a block. And so allowing ourselves to kind of dip a toe in the water, put your feet in the water, hang out and then kind of get in, equalize, or dive deeper. We need that in both senses, our abilities, our willingness to even start and our ability to go deeper. It, it's cumulative. And so you need to build off of things, not only just to equalize. So I really love that metaphor. And I imagine a bunch of people can relate to that because it is daunting and sometimes it feels so big that you don't know where to start. Yeah. And so big and so scary. I would also throw out there that it can feel really scary to start to do, right? That's why another reason I like the scuba diving metaphor is like, we don't know what's down there. I don't hang out down there very often because it's scary down there. I mean, it's dark. The seafloor is dark. Yeah. It's it's dark and it's scary and I don't know what's down there. And so this is also an important reminder, right? We don't even a practice like therapy, you don't do it all day, every day. You do it once or twice a week for 50 minutes because you don't have to stay down there forever, right? You stay down there long enough to challenge yourself, to explore, to get curious, and then you build. And then as you go, you can stay down for longer or go to deeper places, And also, I can't help but think if you spend more time down there, you know how to orient yourself and you know how to get back up or you maybe even have 
the ability to push yourself back up. And so that balance that it provides by going deeper, things might actually feel lighter. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of the way that we would think about Koa Talks, the mental health studio and emotional fitness gym. Koa talks about emotional fitness. And so we can think about it like reps, right? Like repetition. And if you go to a physical health gym and you're like, oh my gosh, there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to do a pull-up. Well, every time you're practicing and pushing yourself and challenging yourself to do those reps, they do become more doable. And the same is true of our emotional health. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, as we get ready to wrap up, there are a million other things I'd like to talk about. And here we really explored the role of story in our relationship with ourself. But obviously this ties into our relationships with other people and with the world around us. And some of the research I did talked about the story of a partnership and how these stories need to be flexible and they need to evolve because we change, a partnership changes, circumstances change. And so the need to be able to evolve the story because if we try to live in that one fixed story, will inevitably stray from that or grow out of it or be forced out of it. And if we can't accommodate for that, then we can't grow within the relationship itself. And so just so many more opportunities for exploration. I know that you specifically love working with folks in the space of sex and intimacy. So I really look forward to exploring that more in our continued conversations with you and in regards to COA, which is the kind of mental health gym that you mentioned that that you work with. And I love that you said kind of a physical health gym because you guys are creating this kind of emotional fitness gym. And so again, the stories we tell ourselves and the different labels and creating space for other kinds of of fitness, mental and emotional fitness. So I think that's wonderful. And as we wrap up, I just would love to leave our listeners with these questions and the reflection of what are the stories you tell and believe about yourself and about the world? And how does that shape your experience for better or for worse? How does that shape your experience of yourself, of others, and of the world as you move through it? And I would love to add one extra little tidbit there of, and where did these stories come from? Hmm. Are these stories ones that you've written for yourself Are these stories that have been passed down through generations? Are these stories that have been written for you by others? Where did these stories come from? That's wonderful. And it just reminded me, actually, just last week, I was speaking to one of one of my closest friends, and I said something to him about an opportunity to rewrite history. And he said to me, well, you know, maybe it doesn't need to be rewritten these different stories, these different versions of history can coexist. And how can you experience them both together? Because they both are a part of who you are and your experience. And I'm just putting, tying this together now. And 
I really loved that concept. And so as we're thinking about these stories and where they came from, do we want to rewrite them? Do we want to edit them? Or do we want to write a new story and, and have these different versions coexist together and, and all be recognized as a part of who we are? Yeah. Yeah. And that's beautiful. And thinking about, again, what are the the multiple stories? What are the multiple threads that are weaved together to create the tapestry of self? I love it. Well, I hope that all of our listeners can, you know, explore the tapestry of themselves, paint, repaint, relayer, create a mural of your stories and your experiences. And I very much look forward to continuing this conversation in our upcoming IG lives and in our event collaboration with COA. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this, Sasha. And thank you for having me and for such wonderful conversation. Thank you so much to each and every one of you for tuning in to listen to our show. If you like what you learned and you know someone who might also like listening, please do share this podcast. You can also feel free to reach out to us anytime. If you'd like to submit questions, requests for experts to have on the show, or if you'd like to share your positive feedback or constructive criticism, we'd love to hear what you think. It's the only way we can learn and grow along with you. Be sure to check out our website, follow us on Instagram at bbxx.world, and subscribe to the book club newsletter, where we send out even more resources to help you dive even deeper to the topics that we bring to you on the show. Once again, we encourage you to take what we discuss on this show and apply it in your everyday life. Because remember, better relationships equals better life.